whatever I could send him. Of course, that wasn't from Dan Winkler. Somebody had hacked his account. He's, as far as I know, doing well in Huntington, Tennessee. But who can you trust? A lady in Indiana was approached by a child care services worker in Indiana. Lured away from her home, she was 23 years old, had a little baby, was lured away from her home and murdered. The woman who claimed to be an Indiana child services worker was a fake. Who can you trust? The Secret Service is supposed to protect our political leaders, our president, senators, representatives. But we've had a long string of incidents over the last couple of years. Recently, one of the gyrocopters piloted by a mailman from Florida landed on the front lawn of the Capitol building. Who can you trust? I want us to think tonight about where we can, should, and do place our trust. Our money says our trust is in our God. But can we? And do we? Tonight I'd like to talk about the power of the plagues. Thanks again for letting me be here this morning and inviting me to come back tonight. I'm glad Dustin and the youth group made it back in okay. If they nod a little to the right or left, I won't be highly offended. I remember so many retreats and coming back on Sunday night. And when I was in youth ministry, I used to always tell the preacher, I need a good one tonight because I'm struggling. Because we had a great weekend, but sometimes even great things wear you out. We're glad you guys made it back. I need to do something that I forgot to do this morning. Chuck and Natalie and the girls send a hello to you. If I, the first thing Chuck is going to ask me when I see him again, we talked on the phone Thursday, we talked quite a bit, is he said, tell everyone hello. So that's going to be his first question when I see him again. Did you tell everyone hello? So I, I bring greetings of love from Chuck and Natalie. And if you ever wonder if anybody on the planet loves you or loves this congregation, just call Chuck. Okay, he just oozes. Every time I talked to him, and he was excited to find out I was going to get to be with you today. Let's think about the power of the plagues. I like to have a biblical bullseye for my lessons. This morning we thought about the idea of empty tomb or empty faith. Which one is it? We either have one or the other. Tonight I want us to focus on the concept that faith focuses on the Father. And I want to look at a story that may or may not be familiar to us. I don't know everyone's background here. But I want us to look at events that basically cover Exodus 4 through 14 and just hit two key ideas. I want us to first of all talk about the plague and then I want us to talk about the proof. But as we go through this, I don't want us to just look at them. You know, a three, 3,500-year-old story just so we know some facts so that we can answer some Bible Bowl questions. The reason we look at these stories is so that they become a window through which we can look into our own lives. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 20, the events of Exodus chapter 3 and 4 largely take place around the burning bush as God is calling Moses to lead His people to freedom. He tells Moses that he has heard his people cry out for help and he's responding to their cries and he wants to deliver them from Egypt. But he needs a leader. 
And so he is sending Moses. And he says to Moses, I'm going to do wonders. Because when you go to Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to you. But I'm going to do wonders among the Egyptians so that he will let you go. Now I want you to think about what happens as you look at the ten plagues as we commonly refer to them. Walt Kaiser has noted that it is of interest you have several references including outside of Exodus in places like 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 6 where it says Pharaoh and the Egyptians hardened their hearts. More specifically, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Kaiser notes something of interest that the references to Pharaoh hardening his own heart tend to be earlier in the story. And while you have references to God hardening his heart throughout the story, you tend to see that more prevalent in the latter plagues. So you have more references to Pharaoh hardening in the earlier plagues. You have more references to God hardening in the later plagues. And one of the questions that always comes up, why? You know, did God take over this guy that intended to... Did Pharaoh intend to be a good guy? Did he intend to be a loving and kind and gracious and godly king and God just took him and made him do evil? What does, how do I deal with the fact that it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart? I think as we look at that, it can be a reminder to us that God allows us to choose a path in life. Each of us will be judged based on our deeds, Paul told the Corinthian brethren. Each of us will be accountable for our own actions, our own choices, whether those choices are good or bad. That's consistent throughout Scripture. So I don't think, and I see no evidence in Scripture, that God takes over someone who intended to do what was good and makes them do evil. James 1 says, God cannot be tempted to do evil, nor does He tempt another. So if He doesn't tempt me to do evil, He's not going to take me over and force me to do evil. So how do I reconcile the story? God allowed Pharaoh to make a life choice. He allowed Pharaoh to choose the path of his life. But it eventually came to be with Pharaoh that I believe he had walked so far down that path that God wasn't going to allow him to come back. Now I want to throw out something for you to think about that may sound unusual. I want you to think about all the sermons we've done on forgiveness. I spent a lot of time thinking about forgiveness and even wrote a book on forgiveness once upon a time and so did a lot of thinking in this area. And a lot of times when we think about and study and write about and preach about forgiveness, we talk about God will forgive anything. And generally speaking, that is true. But do you know the Bible teaches that there are things God will not forgive? For example, He will not forgive blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In the context there in Mark, what he's talking about is where Jesus did a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit and the religious leaders gave the devil the credit for the miracle. They said Jesus did it by the power of Beelzebub. So they did a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, but it, the devil got credit for it and Jesus says that's where you draw the line. When you give the devil credit for the Holy Spirit's work, he says there is no forgiveness. In the book of Leviticus, it says, uh, in some translations it uses the expression high-handed sin, willful rebellious in the face of God sin. Leviticus says God will not forgive. Here's what I think is going on. Pharaoh made a decision that he was going to set himself up as God. He was worshipped as a God. 
We're not just talking about a man who didn't worship the one true God. We're talking about a man who told people he was God and that they were to worship him. He set himself up as God. He oppressed God's people and refused to listen to the one true God. He chose to harden his heart. He chose a path away from God. And he walked so far down that path, at least as I see it, that God made a decision that he was going to make an example of him and he wasn't coming back. And so you see a transition in the plagues from Pharaoh hardening his heart to God further hardening his heart. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 3 and verse 5, it gives us some insight into why God might have done this. God says that He hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And you have this refrain that is found over and over in chapters 8 really through 11. Time and time again, you have this expression that you may know, that you may know, that you may know. I want you to think about, are there other ways God could have gotten the children of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, we're talking about a being that could speak the world into existence. And so all he had to say was, leave, boom, poof, they're in the land of Canaan. Okay, he could have snapped his fingers, he could have twitched his ears, he could have done whatever he wanted to. He could have instantaneously levitated all the children of Israel and they could have floated across the wilderness with no hunger, no thirst, never need of any food or anything until they arrived in the land of Canaan. There are all kinds of ways that the God who can do anything could have done this. But I want to say that God was after more than getting the children of Israel out of Egypt. He didn't just want them out of Egypt. He wanted Himself in their hearts. Because if they were out of Egypt and in the land of Canaan and they didn't believe in Him, then they weren't a lot better off than when they were slaves in Egypt. Because it doesn't matter if you're a slave or you're free. If you don't have God, you have a miserable existence. So He was after more than just their freedom. Just settling for freedom, just settling for comfort in this life will never be enough. I'm reminded of what Moses says when he's talking to God in Exodus chapter 33. God said after the sin of the golden calf, God says, I'm going to keep my promise that I made to your forefathers. I'm going to send my angel with you and he's going to defeat the peoples in the land of promise and the land of milk and honey. But I'm not going with you lest I kill you on the way because you are an obstinate people. And Moses pleads with God to go with them. And God says, I will go with you up from here. And Moses says, if you don't go with us then don't take us up from here. In other words, Moses said, we'd rather be out in the desert with you than in the promised land without you. It wasn't enough that they got out of Egypt. It wasn't enough that they got into the promised land. They had to learn who God was. And they didn't know Him very well. Even Moses... When you look at the encounter with God in Exodus 3 and 4, even Moses said, when I go to them and tell them you sent me, what's your name? 
how do I introduce you? Who shall I tell them sent me? And that's when God makes that powerful proclamation, I am that I am. Even Moses did not go know God well. So he's doing more than just getting them out of Egypt. He's getting himself into their hearts. And he even told Pharaoh, I have raised you up to make a point that you may know, that the Egyptians may know, that the world may know that there is just one God. And that none of the false gods of Egypt have any power. You can't trust them. And so he sent the plagues. I want you to picture in your mind to kind of get the plagues for you. I want you to picture a pond of blood. If you'll memorize this story, you'll never forget them, okay? I want you to picture a pond of blood, and out of the pond is crawling a frog. And if you look closely at the frog, the frog has lice. So you've got a pond of blood, a frog's crawling out that has lice. And by the frog, there are flies buzzing around. And the reason the flies are buzzing around is because there's a dead cow there. And on the dead cow, there are boils. And falling down from the sky, hitting the dead cow with boils that have the flies buzzing around it, there is hail. And on each piece of hail coming down from the sky, there is riding a locust. And all of it is happening in the dark, at a graveyard. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, death of the cattle, boils, locusts, or hail, locusts, darkness, and death. A lot of times with young kids, I'll pass out poster board and they have to draw the story to get in their mind. I want you to think about maybe when you were young, when you learned the ten plagues. Did you ever wonder, did you ever ask the question, why? Why this way? Why these plagues? And I want to talk about that for just a few moments. I want us to remind ourselves that God is just not arbitrary do, arbitrarily doing things. He's not just sitting there saying, oh, I wonder what I could do next. What God is doing is He's looking down upon Egypt and He's looking at everything they trust in. And then He is systematically attacking everything they trust in. They trusted in themselves and their strength and their might. I remember visiting a Ramesses exhibit in Memphis several years ago in a joint venture between Memphis, Tennessee and Memphis, Egypt. And it was amazing, for example, how many things that, were, that are used today still by carpenters were being used by Egyptian carpenters 4,000 years ago and beyond. They were the, among the most technologically advanced cultures of their day. They could do anything. They trusted in their sustenance. I want you to remember in the days of Joseph, when the rest of the world was starving to death, where was the one place on the planet you could find food? It was in Egypt. People from all over the world came to Egypt to get food during the famine. They trusted in their gods. And like many cultures in the ancient world and even in the modern world, they worshipped the world itself. The earth brought forth food, so they worshipped the earth. The Nile was the source of water and life, and so they worshipped the Nile. 
The sun in the sky gave them light to function in the day and allowed the, the plants to produce life for them. And so they worshipped Ra, the god of the sun. They trusted in their, their future. They thought they would last forever and that their kids would go on generation after generation. And every Pharaoh assumed that his family would have an ongoing dynasty. They trusted in their army. The most powerful army on the face of the planet. They trusted in themselves and their strength. They trusted in their sustenance. They trusted in their spirituality. They trusted in their sons and their daughters, their dynasties and their future. They trusted in the might of their soldiers. And systematically, God destroyed them all. Some of the plagues attacked them personally, their strength and their vitality. Some of it attacked their sustenance. Yes, they had had food during the seven years of famine in the days of Joseph. But that would all change during the time of the ten plagues. Just as a Pharaoh rose up who had forgotten Joseph, so the God who had blessed Egypt during the days of Joseph chose to forget Egypt. And they went hungry. And then he systematically attacked their gods. They worshipped the earth and so he pounded it. He caused it not to produce food. Or when the food came forth, He sent something to destroy it. They worshipped the Nile, so He turned it to blood. They worshipped the sun, so He turned it off. He wasn't just arbitrarily doing things. He was taking anything they could believe in, anything they could have confidence in, anything that they could have comfort in, and destroy it. Every Pharaoh assumed that his oldest boy would sit on the throne. They trusted in their dynasties. They trusted in their future. And so God took every single firstborn away. And they trusted in their army. An army that oppressed the children of Israel for hundreds of years. They conquered nation after nation. Became nothing more than debris on the sea as the children of Israel stood singing on the seashore in Exodus chapter 15. He systematically destroyed all they trusted in. Now I want you to think about something. What if He were coming to visit us? What if He were visiting the United States? What if He were visiting our world today? What if He wanted to get our attention? What if He wanted to attack the things that we trusted in? Would He take down Needham Stadium? What would you do if you had no Wi-Fi? Okay, we go on mission trips. I take young folks all over the world. And they can go without hot water. They can go without air conditioning. They can do without all kinds of things. They can have food restrictions and drink restrictions. But the only thing that approaches a life-ending moment is the fact they don't have Wi-Fi. And lest us adults, those of us who are older, look down our noses at them, I think a lot of us are in the same boat, aren't we? Think about all the things that we trust in, all the things that we think are so important, all the things that we work hours and hours to get that become the gods and idols of our lives. And I think if we'll think about what would God attack, 
What if He did ten Bradley plagues? What if He did ten Kirk plagues? What if He went into each of our homes and our families and He attacked, what, attacked whatever it is we trusted in? What would He go after? And if we can figure out what that is, why don't we go ahead and attack it ourselves first? I'm not saying we can't have Wi-Fi. I'm just saying it needs to go off the pedestal where our God's supposed to be. The challenge in each of these is not think about what He did to them, but what it means to us. In that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, He asked them to set aside a lamb or a goat for four days, from the tenth day to the fourteenth day. And He did something unusual. He was looking for proof that they trusted Him. Okay, He had given them the evidence through the plagues that they could trust Him. He displayed His power in the plagues. Now it was time for them to prove whether they believed in Him or not. What's interesting is He actually changed the first day of the year. Abib was now going to, from this time forward, become the first month of the year, which would, in our calendar, be about March or April. And he says, from now on, just imagine that suddenly got a decree from God, from now on, March is January. March is now the first month of the year. Why did he do that? Because that was the month they were leaving. And it symbolized the fact that God was giving them a whole new world, symbolized by a whole new calendar. And he says, I want you to put aside this animal for four days just to be devoted only to the Lord. And he says, I want you to kill this animal and I want you to eat it and I want you to break any of the bones. I want you to totally consume it. And it's interesting how they were supposed to eat it. I want you to think about when, when you get back home tonight, will you stay dressed the same way you are? Okay, I'm going to tell you that just as quick as I can, I'm coming out of this coat and tie. I, I don't know who invented ties, but I'd like to have a heart-to-heart -heart with them. Okay, it's just some guy, some guy who probably made clothing, had some leftover material and said, how can I sell this? Okay, but I don't know about you, one of the things, before I get far down the road, I'm going to take my coat and tie off and I'm going to lay it in the back of the van. And then when I get home, I'm going to put on some comfortable shorts, an old t-shirt, and I'm going to wear socks with sandals. Now my girl tells me, my girls tell me that's not appropriate, but I'm sorry, it's my own house. Deal with it, okay? So the point is, we get comfortable, don't we? We dress differently when we're going out than we do when we're staying home at the house, right? Here's what he said to do. He says, when you eat this meal that would later come to be called the Passover meal, he said, I want you to eat it like you're going somewhere. He said, I want your cloak on and I want it girded. All that means is they had the belt that held their coat together on. He said, I want your belt on. I want your staff in your hand. I want your sandals on your feet. In essence, he says, I want you to eat like you're going somewhere. Sometimes when I look at this passage, I talk about the idea that faith eats standing up. In other words, they were supposed to eat this meal in a hurry, dressed, ready to run out the door. Why? Because after hundreds of years of slavery, it's going to end the next morning. And he says, I want you to eat supper like you believe that. So if you're lying around in your socks with sandals, and your shorts and your t-shirt, and you're not dressed to go and you don't have your staff in your hand, he's saying, in essence, I'm going to assume that you don't believe you're about to go free. I need to see evidence in how you eat supper that you believe what I'm saying to you. And by the way, I then want you to take the blood of that animal and I want you to put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. And I want you to imagine that as you walk down the streets in Egypt, you didn't have to wonder who was a believer. 
Okay? They didn't have to have a sign in the front yard. They didn't have to have a little fish symbol on the back of the chariot. If you walked down the house, you knew who was a believer because it was all the houses with blood on the door. And he said when he saw the blood, the blood was a sign. And when he saw the blood, he would cross over that house. He, through the plagues, showed his power. But then he asked them to show proof that they believed in his power. By obeying him, by putting blood on the door, and by trusting Him and eating supper as if it's going to be the last supper they're going to eat excuse me, as a slave. Faith focuses on the Father. The Egyptians focused on themselves. They focused on their gods, on their strength, on their army, on their future. And what God did with each of those plagues is He took their focus out of all, off of all the things they looked at and He put it squarely on Him. For some time there has been this fascination in Hollywood with kind of these end times or catastrophe movies. Been around for quite a while. I think when I was a, a kid when they had the, the first round of the Planet of the Apes movies. But I want you to think about some that have happened down through the years. You've got, you go back a few years ago and you've got movies like Day After Tomorrow or Independence Day. More recently, you've got the, the Divergent series or you've got um, the Hunger Games series or Maze Runner. Just think of any number of ones you've seen where you've got some catastrophe, you've got some terrible disease, you've got some worldwide war, and we're having to deal with the aftermath of it. I remember some time back some of my students telling about a, a show that was coming on, a TV series, where instantaneously they lost all power and quickly went back to the, to the Stone Age. I want you to think about that. In each of those make-believe worlds, they lost basic amenities that they'd come, become comfortable with. You didn't maybe have running water anymore. You didn't have electricity. You didn't have a lot of the things that you would normally enjoy and people had to adjust. They had to reevaluate how they lived their lives and how they did everything. Now here's the deal. Here's why I bring that up. That's Hollywood. But when we look at what's found in Exodus chapters 4 through 14, it really happened to them. They had to go without good drinking water. They had to go without something to eat. They had to go in total darkness. And in that process, the people of Egypt and the people of Israel living in Egypt were forced to evaluate their lives. What really mattered to them. They had to make adjustments. And some of them learned. Some of them changed. Some put their trust in God. Some ate their meals standing up. Some put blood on their doorposts. Some refused to. And I'm not just talking about the Egyptians. In spite of all they saw, most of the adults who left Egypt, who saw the ten wonders died in the desert because they wouldn't trust the power of the plagues. 
Sometimes people say, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe. Yeah, I'd be a believer. I'd be faithful. I'd do all kinds of amazing things if you just let me see a miracle. They didn't see one. They saw two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then a parted sea to grow on. And still, when it came time to trust God and walk into the promised land, they wouldn't trust Him. My question for us tonight is, what will we learn from their loss? What will we learn from their disaster? What will we learn from the power of the plagues? What is the focus of my life? What is my life really all about? Paul tells us, as he writes to the Corinthian brethren, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Will I put my trust in Him? The same God who did those plagues is the same God who's at the world and working the world and in my life. He's the same God who sent His Son to die on a cross. Is He the focus of my life? Not just for a weekend retreat, but every moment of every day. And do I trust Him enough to obey? When He said put blood on the door, they put blood on the door. And because of that, their children lived. And far too many of our families, our children are dying spiritually because moms and dads have quit putting blood on the door. We've quit obeying our God. And first of all, if Jesus is our Passover lamb and I've never been immersed in Him based on faith for the forgiveness of my sins, I don't have His blood in my life. But my obedience doesn't end at my baptism. It just begins there. Do I truly live every day obeying God? And do I truly trust God? It's one thing to hear God and hear God say, I'm going to help you and I'll be there for you. It's one thing to hear God say, you're going free in the morning. It's another thing to eat supper, dress, standing with your stick in your hand like you expect to walk out the door. Your God says, if you'll put Him first, then all the necessity of this life, this life will be added to us. So when I lose my job, do I fall into despair as if there's no hope and I'll never get a job again? Or do I eat my supper standing up with my staff in my hand and my sandals on my feet because my God has promised me that He'll take care of me? Looking at the power of the plagues makes no difference if it doesn't change how I live tonight. If we can help you to put blood on your doorpost and to start living life eating supper standing up, then won't you come as we stand and sing?